Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads to the week of January 27th. Reactions to the January FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creator, here with Dan Belton as we discuss our takeaways from the recent FOMC meeting, and we conclude with a conversation about volatility in the repo market recently and what it means for swap spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, Daniel, uh, recording this now just after Chair Powell concluded his press conference. Not much expected heading into the Fed meeting today, and I think that the Fed met the no expectations. Yeah, didn't get a whole lot from Chair Powell today, either in the statement or the press conference. One takeaway that I had was it seemed like there was a lot more of a focus on the potential for bubbles and the Fed's macroprudential policies. Whereas in recent press conferences, there was, I think, relatively more focus on the possibility that the Fed would taper and how they would do that. It seemed to be more about the Fed and its ability to withdraw this accommodation and whether Chair Powell thought that the Fed was playing a role in inflating asset prices. I thought one part that was interesting from the press conference today was Chair Powell made the assertion that asset prices in recent months have been driven by fiscal policy and vaccines and not by monetary policy. Well, in a vacuum, that's probably true. I think we would both agree that the Fed has played a significant role in aiding asset prices since the pandemic. Agree. I think that was the headline takeaway. I think he did say something like, well, I realize that central bank policy plays a role in that or something, but I underlined the same part. That was a direct question from Steve Leisman asking about asset prices, and the response was sort of all over the board, talking about we monitor financial stability across this framework that takes into account asset prices, bank leverage, non-bank leverage, funding risk, and across this whole range, stability levels were moderate. And then that was kind of it. But the vaccines and fiscal stimulus are driving values. Yeah, I think it's obviously impossible to divorce what's driving the stock market in a world where we have unprecedented monetary policy support. Like that's a clear driver of it. And he sort of acknowledged it. But I think that the point that has to be made is that he just came back to we are responding to an unprecedented shock to the economy. And I think his direct quote was our response was to that almost in a way saying to me, listen, Unemployment rate's still at 9%, and it's probably higher than that, according to other measures. We are responding to the biggest economic crisis of our lifetime, and the global financial crisis was just 10 years ago. He didn't say it, but I interpreted it as him saying, like, if there are bubbles, there are going to be bubbles. What are we going to do? Not have extremely accommodative monetary policy? I mean, again, he didn't say that, but that's how it came across to me. Did you get a sort of similar feeling? Yeah, I did. And he talked a few times during the press conference about how their policies had been effective and saved millions of jobs. And he's not wrong about that. And so there is an argument to be made in his defense that 
Sure, monetary policy has played a role in supporting asset prices, but more through the impact it's had on the real economy. Whereas I think there's a little bit of everything going on. The effect of monetary policy has largely been a technical tailwind for asset prices, in addition to the fundamental support that it's given the broader economy. And so I think there's a little bit of both sides going on here. And of course, he's going to play up the impact that it's had on the economy. And like you said, doing what the Fed had to do at the time, which I think no one's going to argue against. Right. It sort of segues nicely to what I underlined is what I thought was the second most important thing in the press conference, where he was fielding a question about whether or not the Fed was potentially locked in a corridor where they're bound by the zero barrier. They can't cut rates any further. But at the same time, we can't think about normalizing or anything like that until proof of the recovery is underway. I thought the Shiro's response there was he made the obvious point. We shouldn't be talking about normalization anyways. I mean, the, the question was framed in the sense of, can you extricate yourselves? And Powell's response was, why are we even talking about that right now, basically? We're so far away from even thinking about extricating ourselves. Why would we even bother thinking about how we're going to do it or if it's feasible? Which is probably right. So his answer to that question was, are we locked into a corridor? No, there's more we can do. We can change asset purchases. So the Fed's thinking is clearly not that they might have to do less or how they're going to do less. It's more, we can always do more. And he even doubled down on that, I think, with some of his commentary on inflation. I mean, he went so far as to specifically address base effects and a potential temporary increase in inflation as a result of exuberance once people get vaccinated. He said something like, yeah, people are going to feel enthusiastic. There could be a, a short bump in inflation while people go out and sort of are excited to not be in their house. But he described both the base effect and post-quarantine exuberance as transient impacts on inflation that the Fed well, his implication was that the Fed would essentially look through them. I don't disagree with any of that. Obviously, I think that's very accurate. But I was surprised to hear the FOMC chairman basically say that inflation is going to go up. We're not even going to really consider it inflation. We're just going to keep everything extremely accommodative really for the foreseeable future. He said something to the effect of, we have the tools to fight inflation. We hope inflation would come. We can deal with that. We can't deal with inflation doesn't come and we're kind of stuck here in the same low inflation environment, but with extremely accommodative monetary policy. Yeah, I took his comments about inflation to be in some sense getting ahead of the fact that, yes, headline inflation will jump once we get to March because of the base effect. And he doesn't want the market to take that as a type of inflation that's going to start to run away from the Fed, because I think as we've talked about, that's one of the biggest threats to ongoing monetary policy accommodation is if the Fed does see sustained inflation that they're going to have to start to deal with. And Chair Powell was essentially saying that that's not coming in the near term. And so we can keep being accommodative. And he applied that also to the potential for more fiscal stimulus. He said that that could be inflationary, but that would be a welcome type of inflation to get. And back to the point you made about the Fed being stuck in a corridor, I thought it was interesting how, I think it was on a follow-up question, he was asked about the Fed's ability to stop these policies once it's time to do so. And he said that, yes, we've done it before, back following the financial crisis. After we increased the balance sheet, we shrank it last time. And we learned some lessons about that to do it in a gradual and messaged way. And I think that there's kind of a lot to unpack there. But first, it seems to me he's alluding to the unwinding of QE3, where they tapered by about $10 billion per month until they stopped purchases and then let the balance sheet you know, remain constant at, at its peak. He also talked about shrinking the balance sheet. They didn't get too far in shrinking the balance sheet after QE3. 
So I think it's going to be an ongoing topic of debate of how far the Fed, if and when they do start to normalize down the road, how far they're going to be able to go with that. I made the same note while I was listening to the press conference. He says, we increased the balance sheet and then we ran it down. And in my head, I was like, did you decrease the balance sheet? I mean, I know they did a little bit, but for me, it goes back to the last press conference when Chair Powell was asked a question, I forget the exact words, but to the effect of, is it a foregone conclusion that the Fed is now having to buy treasuries? And he said, it's not a foregone conclusion. Like, I just think the Fed's going to have to be around. I don't know how they'll ever extricate themselves from this. And that's before we get the massive treasury supply that's coming this year and next year to fund these stimulus programs. It's just going to be an extremely, extremely long road. And we're at the second inning if we're even there yet. So I think some of these conversations are a little far into the future. They touched on taper tantrums. I think you know there was a specific question on taper tantrums talking about extrication of the Fed. Those are big, huge questions that are going to have to be answered in the months and years ahead. But I don't think for right now that's what the market should or even is focusing on. I mean, we should acknowledge that as we record this, equities are having their worst day since October, I think. Certainly the worst that I can remember in the in the most recent history. So what's going on in equities today? Is the market reacting negatively to the Fed? I don't think so. I don't think he could have been much more dovish than he was. I mean, he did recognize some things we sort of already knew, bars, restaurants, 400,000 jobs are lost. These people are at risk of permanent displacement, even in the statement that economic growth is moderating now. All stuff we sort of knew. I mean, I think he was about as dovish as you can be while at least acknowledging the realities of what's going on. Yeah, I had a similar read. I think it's easy to conflate dovishness with having a negative outlook on the economy. I thought he made some comments that were pretty negative. First, he said that the pandemic still provides considerable downside risks. Nothing particularly groundbreaking there, but I think that could be explaining some of the equity market's weakness. He also played up the uncertainty in the amount of time that the recovery is going to take, saying that we're a long way from a full recovery. So yeah, again, nothing groundbreaking, but still, I think, highlighting some of these risks. And as we've talked about in the past, risk assets have typically underperformed during Chair Powell's FOMC press conferences since the pandemic. And this, to me, is just a continuation of that trend. Yeah, if I were to try to make the case that risk sentiment has turned lower since the Fed's meeting, I think that I would focus on what you began this conversation with, which was what seemed to be a spotlight on financial stability. Whereas in previous press conferences, and we do a podcast episode like this after every one of them, there's like a throwaway question, maybe one on financial stability. And, and a lot of times, Powell will give a vague answer and they move on. This one was about financial stability from the get-go. And I think the first question was on GameStop or GameStock, as they kept calling it throughout the press conference, which I, for some reason, found funny. But it was about GameStop. And I think that, you know, there's some truth to this fear that GameStop and Bitcoin, not in the last week or so, but up until very recently, GameStop is literally asset prices going higher without any fundamental justification for it. And I get that the stock market sell-off today might be more technical in nature that we have to close out our short positions or there may be margin calls or whatever it is. And so maybe this is just a technical move lower as these, whatever you want to call Reddit, you know, pressuring shorts are closed out. But is that in itself not an indication of potential asset bubbles that people are trading this way? Yeah, I think that certainly is one interpretation of it. There are some parallels that people have drawn to the dot-com bubble on the back of what we've seen in certain stocks this week. So I think you could certainly make that argument. Yeah. 
given this focus on financial stability, I don't think we actually mentioned this in our first pass on the topic. What I highlighted as the most important portion of that press conference was that after Leishman's first question, I think he followed up by saying something like, will the Fed ever adjust policy to deal with asset bubbles or however he worded it, a decrease in financial stability? And I thought that was the most important question that was asked. Because really, at the end of the day, all these questions are on financial stability. What we really need to know is, is the Fed actually going to change their policy as a result of a decrease in financial stability? Yeah. And what Chair Powell said there and what I think has been the longstanding view at the Fed is that monetary policy is for the economy, it's for job growth and inflation control, but they have other tools that they can use for financial stability. Specifically, they have macroprudential tools that they would use for something like that. And they wouldn't necessarily raise rates because they feel that a bubble is forming in some asset class. And I think that's I think that's the way that this Fed is going to continue to operate. So I don't expect them to start to use monetary policy to respond to potential asset price inflation. And that's probably the most important takeaway from everything the Fed talked about today. To me, that's the number one takeaway. Like, yeah, sure, we can change regulations. We have macroprudential policy. Other people can regulate the non-financial sector. Like he talked about all those other possibilities. He didn't say we'll never do it. He said we wouldn't rule it out, but it's something we don't want to use. We've never done it. We don't envision it. Bottom line, Fed's not going to adjust their policy in any way because of asset bubbles. And that's even if they see them. He didn't even go so far as to say he did. He said it was sort of moderate today. So at the end of the day, Fed's not going to change their policy anytime soon. And for me, that means the music can keep going. Whether or not valuations make sense, it's a personal opinion, but I think that the Fed, and to the extent that Fed liquidity plays into things, it's going to stay there. And that maybe steers the conversation towards corporate bonds a little bit more directly, because I think corporate bonds were referred to directly as a bubble at one point in the press conference, and Chair Powell addressed them, and he said they, they're sort of tight, and he said, we don't really have any control over that. But you can sort of view it as a good thing, he said, because that means these companies stay in business. These companies are able to access capital markets to keep their workers at work. So credit spreads are very narrow. We've talked about that a lot. Our expectation is for them to continue narrowing, even though they've hit a bit of a rough patch here. I don't see any major change to that view. In fact, it's sort of been reinforced by the chairman, although, like you said, there is more emphasis, there is more concern over asset bubbles at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest takeaway I had from today's press conference. And it's not surprising, but the market narrative, I think, has decidedly shifted to market participants watching for the potential for asset bubbles in various sectors of the market. So does that change your view on being bullish credit here? Do you think maybe that saps some of the ability for spreads to keep narrowing or or do you keep your view in place? No, it doesn't change my view. I think there's other pockets of the market where the potential for asset price inflation could be reversed, but I think credit stands out still as, you know, not unattractive relative to other classes. So, I remain bullish on credit spreads at least in the medium term. Yeah, it goes back to that it's all relative argument that I think we talked about last week. Like, okay, you don't like corporate spreads, so what are you going to do? Go to equities, those are even more overvalued. High yield, very narrow. Are you just going to sit in cash? Like it's a relative situation and credit spreads still look relatively attractive in our view. So I don't think any any changes to the view there. Why don't we touch on one more point here with the Fed? Chair Paul was asked a question on 13.3 facilities expected to expire on March 31. And I wrote down 
facilities were successful. I put were in quotes in case that was somehow implying that he was referring to them in the past tense. Turned out really not to be the case. He just meant at the time of the crisis, those were extremely instrumental in keeping credit flowing and keeping the plumbing of the financial system clear. He basically just didn't really give an answer. He said they're going to continue to monitor financial conditions. And if there is an emergency, facilities will be available. So just saying, no matter what happens on 331 or afterwards, and also in reference to the facilities that have already been allowed to expire, we can bring them back if they need to. And then he just concluded by saying that we haven't had any meetings with Treasury. He sort of really harped on the fact that they haven't met yet. I mean, remember, though, that the facilities that expired on December 31st, Treasury really made that happen because Treasury invests in those facilities and Mnuchin said that they were no longer to invest in those. So that wasn't necessarily the Fed's decision to make those facilities go away. It was driven by Treasury. And sort of trying to read the tea leaves here, he says we haven't had any meetings with Treasury yet, which implies to me that he wants them to keep going unless Treasury doesn't desire that. If he thought that they should end, he'd just say, yeah, we don't think we need them anymore. Instead, he said, we haven't really talked to Treasury yet. That's obviously my conjecture. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think in general, a Fed chair is going to have the preference to keep around these facilities, particularly in a time when there is this economic uncertainty, whereas the Treasury Secretary has a little bit of a different mandate in terms of protecting taxpayer dollars and I agree with you that I think Chair Powell probably would prefer to have these facilities around, but at the end of the day, it's probably not his call. And um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them expire at the end of March. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. I agree with your general assessment of the situation that the Fed may be more willing to have them. I mean, I think it's also fair to say that Yellen will be more willing to keep them around than Mnuchin was. It's hard to think it matters too much either way here. The one maybe that might actually end up being the most important thing to set to expire on March 31st is the temporary exemption that treasuries were granted in terms of leverage calculations for the big banks. We've talked about massive treasury supply a couple times. If that exemption is taken away and suddenly, you know, treasuries now are entering back into the calculation for leverage for most banks that would increase the concern over where are all these treasuries going to go. So that's probably a conversation for a different day. Actually, I think we're talking a lot about treasury supply in our cross-sector market podcast that we're going to be doing next week with the whole team. So look out for that next week for a more in-depth conversation there. All right, Dan. Well, before moving on, any other thoughts on today's Fed meeting or the press conference? No, I think that pretty much covers it for me. All right. Well, then before signing off today, I did want to at least touch on possibly the most exciting topic in the spread market in the past week or so, and that is that swap spreads are actually moving a little bit, at least more than they have for the majority of the post-crisis period. Dan, what's driving the widening in swap spreads? Yes, yeah, so we've finally gotten a little bit of volatility in swap spreads, it feels like, for the first time in quite a while. And it doesn't feel like it's attributable to LIBOR. LIBOR really hasn't moved in months. It's been stuck in this 20 to 25 basis point range since September. There are theories that the LIBOR cessation fallbacks have something to do with it. I don't think that's likely the case because there's not really any new information on that front this week. Fallbacks have been responsible for some of the longer term trudge wider in belly and long end swap spreads, but I don't think that's behind the move this week. Rather, this week it seems to be more of a repo story. So last week we saw a repo traded briefly negative. And then it found a little bit of footing, at least temporarily, as the GSE cash left the market late last week. 
But yesterday it moved back down to three basis points, which is the lowest level since May. We've also seen fives and tens trade special and repo. Those have been a couple of the tenors that have outperformed in swap spreads. So Dan, the question I think becomes, what is going on in the repo market this week and last week? And where do we expect it to go from here? Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is a repo story. I mean, we did have this consultation on, on LIBOR cessation end just two days ago. So I guess you could make an argument that that has something to do with it. But again, they're going to make their cessation announcements probably in the weeks ahead, but there's not going to be anything new there. So the question of why now, it just doesn't make sense. Repo does seem to be a bit of a smoking gun. You talked about so for at its lowest print in a long time. Repo is actually quoted at and even below zero at times. So it does seem like repo is the culprit. And why is repo so low? There have been a few different theories we've seen on what's going on with repo rates and where the genesis of this cash is coming from, ranging from heavy sec lender activity in treasury repo given elevated equity shorts. We've seen some theories that increased usage of sponsored repo is to blame. I think the most common one, though, has been this notion that GSE cash is the reason why, heavier than normal GSE cash. And for any who maybe aren't familiar, typically have this couple-day window leading up to the 25th of the month called the GSE float period, where GSE cash is in the market. It's really just GSEs building up cash balances that they then forward on to MBS holders in the form of principal and interest on the 25th. So, there's always GSC cash in the market at this time when repo rates always come under a little bit of downward pressure. Well, this month, it was reportedly heavier than normal. And most importantly, on the 25th of the month, that cash is supposed to come out of the market once they send those P&I payments to bondholders. Anecdotal reports indicate that this time that didn't happen and the GSC cash remains in the market on the 26th and the 27th as well. So there have been some attempts to explain this phenomenon with GSC cash remaining in the market. One popular theory making the rounds yesterday was that heavy GSC cash was the result of some proposed rulemaking by the FHFA in December that would basically require the GSEs to hold HQLA portfolios, similar to how GSIB banks have to comply with LCR ratios now. The key difference would be that the definition of HQLA, and they don't call it HQLA, I'm just going to, you know, for the purposes of understanding, their definition of HQLA would be even narrower than what GSIB banks are allowed to use because the GSEs would not be allowed to hold mortgages for that requirement. Given some pro-cyclicality concerns with mortgage companies, Fannie and Freddie, holding mortgages, they didn't want that. So really, the GSEs were limited to holding basically just cash, repo, treasuries, and some unsecured bank deposits. But even those deposits were limited to just U.S. banks and capped at $10 billion, a very small fraction of the presumptively very large GSE HQA portfolio. So really, we're talking cash, repo, and treasuries, which lends credence to the notion that maybe repo actually is a significant portion of this portfolio. And maybe that is why we're still seeing GSE cash. But that's not a story we believe, is it, Dan? No. So if you really dig into the financials of the GSEs, which we did, it seems like they've been compliant with this minimum, as you call it, the HQLA requirements since at least September. So just from the Q3 financials from Fannie Mae, they say that in June of 2020, FHFA instructed that we and Freddie Mac comply with updated prescriptive liquidity requirements. We expect the effective dates for these requirements to be December 1st, 2020. FHFA's requirements require us to hold more liquid assets than are required under our current metrics. And here's the important part. We estimate that our liquidity position as of September 30th, 2020 meets these new requirements. So it seems that the GSEs were already compliant with these requirements as of the end of the third quarter. So it stands to reason that this is not a significant development, which would explain the impact on the repo market that we're seeing. 
And just to provide a little bit of further credence to this idea of the GSEs becoming compliant with new requirements, the discount note program that the GSEs had that used to be in the tens and for times in the hundreds of billions of dollars, these portfolios have dropped to zero last fall and are expected to remain there. And that is, in our view, reflective of compliance with liquidity and stable funding requirements from the FHFA. And it's likely not a coincidence that these two things happened at the same time. It does seem like the evidence that the GSEs are already complying with these regulations, even though they're still just officially proposed, the evidence seems overwhelming. So I don't see the argument that that is suddenly why we're seeing GSE cash in the market. That's not to say, though, that GSC cash isn't having any impact. I think it is. We've talked about numerous times, at least in our written work in the past couple of months, about how uncertainty on the cash front of the GSCs is probably near all-time highs for a few reasons. I mean, there's the forbearance programs that are still going on, and the GSCs have to be sending P&I payments to bondholders that they're not getting from their servicers. There's also the introduction of this adverse market refinancing fee, which is basically just a 50 basis point cash fee put on any refinancings going forward that goes to the GSEs to help try and cover the cost of some of those forbearance programs. You remember that fee was originally scheduled to go into effect in September, but after some industry pushback, it got delayed until December, which is typically a light closing month as people don't want to be closing mortgages around the holidays. So to some extent, January is really the first time they're getting that fee in full. But the big factor here is likely the potential that loans will have to be purchased out of GSE MBS trusts at some point in time in 2021. That's the driver of potentially big cash balances. And so I'll take a step back and we'll explain this one sort of from a high level for anyone that maybe isn't as familiar with the inner workings of the GSCs. But basically, when the GSC buys a mortgage, they then put it into an MBS trust, and they sell a mortgage-backed security to an investor who is then entitled to the principal and interest cash flows from that mortgage. So it's helpful to think of it as basically just an SPV. The GSC takes in the loan, puts it into a special mortgage pool, and then all the cash flows of that pool are sent on to MBS holders after you know some servicers take their clip and things of that nature. Now, everyone is familiar with the concept of a prepay. When someone moves or they sell their house and they prepay their mortgage, they send the entire principal value to the GSCs who then send that entire value onto the mortgage holder. And that's a prepay. The loan is paid off. It comes out of the trust. It's retired. Well, a default works the same way as a prepay to an MBS holder. When a mortgagee actually goes into default, remember Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac actually guarantee the MBS holder their P&I. So when the GSCs see a defaulted borrower, they have to, as we say, purchase that mortgage out of the trust, which is actually just sending the MBS holder the entire principal for that mortgage. And then they take that mortgage back onto their balance sheet out of the trust. And they put it in the retained mortgage portfolio as they work with the borrower on loan workouts or modifications to try to get that borrower back to paying. But this is the concern for the GSCs, the potential to have to suddenly purchase a lot of mortgages out of trust, which requires the full principal of that loan. And obviously, this comes from forbearance programs. Aftercare's thousands of homeowners entered into mortgage forbearance programs with a maximum life of 12 months. So unless that forbearance program is extended in President Biden's next fiscal stimulus, you're going to see those forbearance programs start to expire You know, around April, May, June of 2021. When that happens, the borrower will either start making payments again and basically go current, or they will become delinquent. And if they become delinquent, the GSEs may have to purchase those loans out of trusts in the process I just described. So 
if that happens, if you suddenly have a large wave of delinquent buyers who don't come back to paying their mortgage once forbearance ends, obviously the GCs are going to have to have a lot of cash on hand to purchase those mortgages out of MBS trusts. Now, looking at most recent Q3 financials, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac combined had almost $200 billion worth of loans and forbearance programs that were more than 30 days delinquent. So you can sort of call that the risk. Obviously, not all of those loans are going to go delinquent, probably well less than half are going to go delinquent at least right away. But the point we're trying to demonstrate here is that there's a lot of uncertainty over whether or not these homeowners are going to eventually begin paying their mortgage again once forbearance periods end. And the GSEs have to be preparing for that possibility that they do not. So We've seen GSC cash balances rise over $150 billion in just the past year, up to November 2020. That's the most recent data we have. And that's probably the largest reason why. And we have no reason to think that that's going to stop in the near future. So it's true that GSC cash is likely influencing repo rates lower. GSC cash balances have been high for months now. It's not some magical thing we've reached in January 2021 that suddenly the market is overwhelmed with GSC cash. That's not it. GSC cash is just one symptom. There's also, in a financial market, just a wash in central bank reserves. There are many market participants that have to invest in government collateral at the short end. The GSCs are just one, but then you have all your money market funds, the banking system. It's across the board. You have a lot of demand for short-end treasury collateral, and that cash is just overwhelming the amount of collateral there is now. And the collateral side is important to comment upon as well. I mean, just looking at T-bills, in the past six months, we've had negative $240 billion in net supply. And BMO's repo desk notes this morning that the calculation basket that's released by the Fed that underpins their tri-party general collateral rate and the SOFR rate – both have fallen significantly recently, and the sulfur basket actually fell to its second lowest level since October. So we just have an imbalance where cash in the financial system is outnumbering collateral in the financial system. And the GSE cash story we just went through is one of the reasons why. And the important takeaway here is that GSC cash, it's probably not going anywhere. Neither is a lot of these other sources of cash looking for short-term investments. It's going to stay there, which implies that in the short term, repo rates don't necessarily have to come back up to where they were prior to even just a month ago. They could stay low and swap spreads could stay high, at least in the very near term. But if we look further out to the medium and long term, it doesn't appear to be as much of a concern. Yeah, Dan, I think looking on to the medium and longer term, there's reasons to expect that this is going to be a short-lived phenomenon, even if it's not just a calendar-based thing like you mentioned. So first of all, if repo and Fed funds stay at the bottom end of the Fed's target range, it's possible that the Fed does a five basis point IOER tweak higher, as they've done many times in the past. But also, I think more likely the natural longer term solution is going to be treasury issuance. We're going to have a flood of treasury supply come in 2021, and we're expecting about $1.7 trillion after Fed purchases, if Fed purchases don't increase in conjunction with the heavy treasury supply. Now, that will more than solve the lack of collateral problem, and I think it's a reason to expect that over the longer term, swap spreads are going to normalize from these levels. So high level, I guess, altogether, I agree with you. I think that we could see some near-term upward pressure on swap spreads, but in the very long term, these are probably going to be attractive sale levels, particularly in the belly where spreads have actually performed their best as you said earlier, because that's where repo rates have been special. It may not be a coincidence that we had a five-year auction yesterday, five-year repo rates no longer being special, and five-year spreads 
narrow over basis points so far today. So I think looking at some of those points along the curve that have benefited from special repo rates in particular, these might be attractive sell levels ahead of all the treasury supply that's coming later in the year. Well, then I think that basically wraps up this episode of Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads. We'll be back in two weeks. Next week, we have our monthly cross-sector podcast that supersedes ours. We'll be talking about some of this heavy treasury supply and what it might mean for various asset classes, including credit spreads. So look out for that. We'll be back in two weeks. And as always, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.